For the last five months, I've been preaching to you a series called Spirit-Filled Family Living. And I've given you biblical principles that God has showed me in His Word. And I don't want to repeat those too lengthy today, but I just want to remind you that the principle is this. That every thought, every attitude, every act that you perform is a seed. And you're sowing that seed. If you're God's child, you have two forces working within you. You have the old Adamic, that's from the word Adam, Adamic nature that is predisposed toward doing wrong. If your thoughts and attitudes and actions go along those lines, there's going to be a harvest of death. On the other hand, you have God's Holy Spirit living within you. If your thoughts and actions and attitudes, those seeds are planted in accordance with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you are going to have a harvest of life. That's been the premise for the last five months. But this morning, I come now to talk to you, and I want to ask you perhaps the most important question that I have asked you in this series. And it's a point blank, straight out, up or down, yes or no question. And that question is, do you want to have a happy, blessed family? Do you want to have a happy, blessed family? I think, I think it's important for us at this moment to stop and answer that question. Because it is a yes or no question. As the poet said, there are two, two roads that diverge. And your choice is going to make all the difference. So it isn't something that you're going to bounce back and forth between. We're talking about two ways of life. So when I ask you, do you want to have a happy family? Then I think it's important, it's incumbent upon you that you at least answer that question. And when I say happy, I don't mean a perfect family. Because trust me on this one, nobody has a perfect family. You say, well, I think somebody here in the church has a perfect family. They would be the first to tell you they don't have a perfect family. No one does. There is no such thing as a perfect family. There's no such thing as a family that has all good days. There's no such thing as a family that doesn't have any problems or stresses or difficulties. But there are happy families. And there are spirit-filled families. And that's my question for you. Do you want to have a happy family? Again, I'm not talking about a plastic family, not a Stepford wife kind of thing. I'm talking about a family that serves the Lord, feels the blessing and the favor of God. Well, this morning I end the series with the same good news that I began it with the first week of June. I want to tell you, there is hope for your family. You may say, Pastor, you're not talking about my family. Yeah, I'm talking about your family. There is hope for your family. And beyond that, let me say that you can have a happy, overcoming family. It is possible. And in our text, the Word of God tells us how. That's why I've saved this last sermon in our series for this title, The Spirit-Filled Family. The Spirit-Filled Family. Again, I've asked you to open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 5. This is so interesting. If I came to you, or if someone else came to you and said, tell me the verse in the Bible that is the most centered verse relating to the filling of the Holy Spirit, I think we'd all give them the same verse. If someone came to me and said, Pastor, what is the definitive verse for being filled with the Spirit of God, I wouldn't think twice before I would give them Ephesians 5.18, where the Bible says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. If you want to know about the Holy Spirit of God, that is ground zero. It is the command to keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you ask me, what's the definitive verse of the Holy Spirit? I wouldn't think that long before I would say to you, it is Ephesians 5.18. But here's what gets exciting to all of us who want to have a happy family. Right after the Bible tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the subject 
is family life. That's what's going to happen now for the rest of chapter 5 going into the early part of chapter 6. The Holy Spirit says, be filled with me. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And right after that, the subject is the family. It's interesting to me because the subject is not the church. I mean, we would think the Bible would say, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And right after that, we would have this treatise on soul winning, personal evangelism, or world missions, or church work. But no, right after the Bible says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, the subject is family life. And I believe there's a reason for that, church. If you and I are filled with God's Spirit, it will not show up here at church first. It'll show up first at home. If you're filled with God's Spirit, the first person to know it, sir, will be your wife and then your kids. Lady, the first person who will know whether or not you're filled with the Holy Spirit is your husband. That's where we'll know it. There's an old verse I memorized out of the King James where the Bible says, if any man have piety, let him show it first at home. Now, I bet you didn't use the word piety 12 times last week. It just means godliness. If anybody's got godliness, it'll show up first at home. I don't care how big a Bible you carry, and I don't care what a spiritual look you get on your face when you walk around this campus. It don't mean a thing if you don't have God working within you at home. That's why when the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit, the subject material is not the church, it is the home. Let's read the verses that come afterward, and I think you'll see what I mean. But we started with Ephesians 5.18. I'd like for you to move to verse 21 now. The Bible says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. But we're members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers or parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Do you see what I'm talking about, church? I mean, it's be filled with the Spirit. And right after that, it's all about the family. Now, I have to admit to you, and you may consider this a personality flaw on my part, but I'll be honest with you and transparent. There is something in my personality that I just love about this text that we just read a moment ago. I love stuff that's not unnecessarily complicated. Is there anyone else like that who's a member of my tribe? I just love stuff that's not unnecessarily complicated. I don't like it when stuff gets cloaked in unnecessary verbiage. That's just a waste of my time. I don't like that. Say it and get to the point. I like that. I do not like stuff that has 27 steps. Because I'll look at something that I really want to accomplish, but if it's got 27 steps, I'll think, man, I can't even remember that, much less perform the steps. 
So I just love it when things are not unnecessarily complicated. Now, the reason I love what the Holy Spirit is doing here in the last part of Ephesians 5 and the first part of chapter 6 is this. He isolates the responsibilities of each member of the family, and then he distills them down to just one line. I like that, don't you? I mean, think about that. I mean, the Holy Spirit must have done that for dumb fellows just like me. He gets it down to one line. Everything. Now, the blessing about that, folks, is no matter who you are, you think about this. You are just one step away from from fulfilling your part of a spirit-filled, harmonious, loving family life. You are just one step away. Somebody could say, Pastor Hoover, my home is in turmoil right now. My husband and I, we fight all the time. The kids are a mess. I scream at the kids. We're Christians, but our home is a war zone. Okay, I'm sorry to hear that. My guess is, from what I hear from time to time, you have a lot of company. But the good news is, you're only one step away. If you're a husband, you have one step. If you're a wife, you have one step. If you're a parent and you're married, you have two steps. You have a step as a husband or wife. You have a step as a parent. But all of us are just one step away from fulfilling our specific role. The Holy Spirit, after we're filled with the Holy Spirit, He gets our role down to one line and says, okay, you do this, you have a Spirit-filled home. Husbands, what's your one line? Love your wife. Love your wife. Wife, what's your one line? Respect your husband. Respect your husband. Children, honor and obey your parents. Parents, don't exasperate your children, but bring them up in godly training. That's it. Holy Spirit gets it down to just one line for everything. No 12-step program, just one line. Now, in the brief sermon I'm going to preach to you this morning, or at least the brief sermon I intend to preach to you this morning, it could get lengthy, I want to give you those four lines and talk about them for a few moments. But before I get to each of those four responsibilities, I have two extremely important things to say to each one of you who desires to have a happy, spirit-filled family, just as I told you about. There are two things I need to give to you. And the first thing is, God is very honest about the problem that gets in our way. Listen to me. When I think about my life, and I want to be a spirit-filled husband, I want to be a spirit-filled father, I want to be a godly husband, I want to be a godly father, the Holy Spirit says, okay, Mark, now, there's something that can get in the way. It's interesting to me that uh, even though the Holy Spirit gets it down to one thing, He says there is something that can get in the way of you being the kind of husband, you being the kind of wife, you being kind of the parent or child that you need to be. And the problem is selfishness, selfishness. There is a problem that gets in the way of a happy home, and that problem is selfishness. A few moments ago, I read chapter 5, verse 18 to you that says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We picked it up at verse 21. From that point on through the early part of chapter 6, it's all about the family. But sandwiched in between Chapter 5, verse 18, chapter 5, verse 21 is a verse that we need to hear. The Bible says this verse, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What's going on in the family? If it's a spirit-filled family, you got people who are meeting each other's needs, submitting to one another. Now, a lot of people miss this verse. You know, there are husbands who hear about, you know, wives respecting them and they go home and they start swinging around a 98-pound Schofield Bible and they say, listen, did you hear that preacher this morning, wife? That preacher said, you are supposed to obey me on a lot of other stuff the pastor didn't say. But he said, did you see what's in the Bible? Now we're going to get this house straightened out. That's not what the Bible is saying. 
before the Bible ever talks about what husbands are supposed to do, wives are supposed to do, what children, what parents are supposed to do, it says this. You've got to go into your home meeting other people's needs, submitting to one another. That's how it works. Now, that's not a couple. We have a couple of issues there even because, see, our old nature tells us that we ought to be selfish. And beyond that, the, the message of our culture The message of our culture is, listen to this, here's what's interesting. The culture says the problem is not selfishness, the answer is selfishness. See, that's the difference between the culture and the Word of God. God says before you can have the kind of home you need to have, you've got to get rid of selfishness. The culture says before you can get what you want, you have to have selfishness. Selfishness is the answer. That's the message of modern psychology, television, media. Demand your rights, demand your space. Stand up for yourself, get your way, do this for yourself. That's the message of our times. The culture says selfishness is the answer, but God says selfishness is the problem. And the question comes back to us today. Do you want to have a happy, spirit-filled family? And if you do, you have to understand the selfishness keeps us, each one of us, from doing the one thing the Holy Spirit asks from us in family life. And therefore, since selfishness will keep you from doing the one thing that God assigns you to do, selfishness locks you out from having a happy, spirit-filled home. Let me show you what I mean. What was the assignment for wives? Do you remember? Wives were to respect their husbands. But what if this husband is only looking out for himself? What if he's a selfish guy? What if he only cares about what he wants? His assignment is to love his wife, but he can't love his wife because he's selfish. Now, think about that where that puts the wife. How does she respect a man who is in love with himself? Now, it can be done. And I have met many godly Christian women who still manage to do this by faith in God's word. They, they still respect their husbands, even though he's a selfish jerk. But it sure does make life difficult. What's the assignment for husbands? Love your wives. But what if the wife is the prototypical woman of today? One of the phrases that we hear over and over today in the media is a strong woman. This woman is a strong woman. On the the face of that, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good for any of us to be strong. But often what the culture means is they look out for themselves. They do what they want to do. If they fit in a husband and child, fine. But if they can't, it's all about them. But where does that leave a Christian husband? His assignment is to love his wife. But frankly, why should a man love a woman who is already in love with herself? In fact, if it's all about her, why should he even care about her? That's why today, divorce is at pandemic level. It's no wonder that marriages are ending. And you can extend this out to the other relationships that are mentioned here in the family Children, honor your parents, the Bible says. But what if the parents are in love with self and convenience and money and pursuing their own ambitions? I know I'm treading on sacred ground here this morning, but I just, while I'm here, I'm going to deal with this. And you may hate me and never come back to hear me again, but I do want to tell you this one time for parents. There are parents here, I don't mean necessarily here in our church, but there are parents in our culture today who want children but they're not prepared to make the sacrifices associated with having children. 
There are people who want babies. Let me tell you something. If you want a baby, you better want an adolescent too. You hearing me? So I just want to have a baby. You better want to have a teenager too because that's what's going to happen. Mark Twain said when a boy gets 13, put him in a box and cut a hole big enough for him to breathe. And he said when he turns 17, plug up the hole. I d- I'm just saying, if you're going to be a parent, you understand there are some, there are some sacrifices associated with that. Why should a child honor a parent who's in love with himself, who doesn't care about him? And it goes on and on. Parents are to, to nurture their children, but we live in a culture today where kids are taught disrespect for adults. It's tough. Let me just tell you this. It's tough having a godly family if people will not submit to the plan of the Holy Spirit to meet each other's needs. Submit to one another. That's the word of God. Listen to me. You cannot have a happy home where selfishness rules. Okay, one more thing I want to show you before we get to those four separate responsibilities of every member of the family. I want us to ask this question. What is it that makes God's plan work? They're just four simple things. What is it about those four simple things that make things work? Simply put, when husbands, wives, parents, and children obey the Holy Spirit, we reverse the curse. Somebody can say, Pastor, what on earth do you mean reverse the curse? Well, if you believe the Bible, you understand that the problems that exist in human relationships are attributable to original sin in the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, he ushered sin into the world. He brought all the negative effects that accompany sin into the world. So therefore, you take every problem you've ever had with your wife, every problem you've ever had with your children, every problem you've ever had with your parents or your friends or anybody else, and I'm not saying you can blame Adam for it because we're responsible for the parts that we've done. But it all goes back to original sin in the Garden of Eden. When man sinned, there was a curse upon this world. Now, for some reason, the curse that came on the world because of sin had a particularly damaging effect on family life. Think about that. When Adam and Eve sinned, it affected their relationship. It certainly affected the relationship that their kids have. When that curse came upon the world, it had a devastating effect upon family life. Now, if I asked you, where would you go in the Bible to find the place where Adam and Eve sinned? Where would you go? Genesis 3, right? Genesis chapter 3, that is the place that records where Adam and Eve sinned against God. Now, in the middle to late part of chapter 3, God has come to confront Adam and Eve with what they have done wrong. It is in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3 that God now addresses Eve. I want you to hear what God said to her. He said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. There's a rather obscure phrase here. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. It's tough to translate the Hebrew there, I understand. Basically, what, what, what that, what, what, from what I can understand, what the Hebrew is saying is this. There's going to be a struggle for control in the family. To the wife, she's going to want to rule, and the husband, he's going to want to dominate and put her under his thumb. There's going to be what we call the battle of the sexes. Where did that start? Start in Genesis chapter 3, when the curse fell. 
From that moment on, there was jockeying for position going on between the man and the woman. A struggle for control. That's the situation that the curse put on the world. But you hear me for a moment. For those of us who have been born again, although we must live in a cursed world, we don't have to accept the way things are because we are born again by the Spirit of God. We have the eternal guarantee of God's Holy Spirit living within us. We were not, we were not born for this world. We were born for heaven. We're on our way And because we're on our way, our citizenship is already in heaven. We don't have to personally live according to the ramifications of the curse in our own lives. We may live in a cursed world. We may live in a cursed flesh. But we can, by the grace of God, reverse the curse in our relationships. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that by putting others ahead of ourselves and and, and in doing that, We have an opportunity to live with each other as God intended before sin entered in. Now, with that in mind, I want us to take a look for the next few moments at the Spirit-filled family, each one's responsibility. What is the assignment for husbands? One line, love your wife, love your wife. I honestly believe that this command is the capstone of a godly family. I didn't just say marriage. I believe it's the capstone of a godly family. If a husband will, from the beginning, love his wife, usually everything else falls into place. So then, husbands, what does that say about us? If everything comes down to whether or not a husband loves his wife, what does that say about us? You Listen to me. You show me a man who will love his wife, I can nearly on every occasion show you a wife who will respect her husband. And you show me a home where a man loves his wife and a wife respects her husband, I'll show you children who grow up with the model of loving authority. And they may go back and forth and bounce around for a while, but when all the chips are down, they're going to come back to that model that they've received from their parents. So it all goes back in my mind to the husband loving his wife. Now quickly, let's notice husbands are commanded to love their wives with two guiding examples. Two times we have... The use of a simile, a form of speech, a form of writing called a simile. A simile, of course, is a comparison with the usage of either the word like or the word as. Two times we have the word as. Husbands are commanded to love their wives as this. So men, you want to know how do you, how do you love your wife? Well, verse 28, love your wife as you love yourself. As you love yourself. And men do love themselves. Amen, ladies? I mean, they do. We, I, there's something about us. If we need something, we'll find a way to get it. And it's amazing what men can need. Outboard motors. I mean, it's just amazing. Men need things. Men love themselves. And so, man, husband number one, you are commanded to love your wife as you love yourself. That means, and this is, this is the obvious, you can't go into a relationship thinking, what am I going to get out of this? Because the moment you do, you've already given that away. You no longer love your wife as you love yourself. So really, let's just say if you got to the place where you could love your wife, you start in saying, what are we going to get out of this? Because I love my wife just as much as I love me. So I'm looking out for her interest just as much as I'm looking out for my own interest. Love your wife as you love yourself. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many husbands are here thinking, I think I could do that. I think I could do that. Well, maybe you can. 
but you're never going to get to this next one. This next one will always be out in front of you. You will always be reaching for this next one. Verse 25, you are to love your wife as Jesus loved us. As Jesus loved us. Sir, do you want to know how much to love your wife? You get a picture of Jesus Christ walking up Calvary's hill and laying down on the cross. See, if you love yourself as you love your wife, you go into it saying, what are we going to get out of this? If you love your wife like Jesus loved the church, you walk into a marriage saying, what is my wife going to get out of this? What is she going to get out of this? How is she going to have her needs met? See, if we're loving as we love ourselves, it's us. If we're loving the way Christ loved the church, it's her. You read Ephesians 5 again. The focus was on the church. Jesus didn't go to the cross thinking, how can I feel good about what I'm doing? He was looking at the church. He was looking at us. I may be preaching to someone here today and you could say, Pastor, my wife has so many failures and so many problems. I just don't think I can ever love her like this. Well, I'll tell you, the honest truth is every wife has faults, just like every husband has faults. My wife may have a few. You will never hear them from me. But I want to tell you something. With what few faults my wife has, on her worst day, she could not begin to compare with the faults that I have had before the Lord who bought me. How can I personally find fault with her when I have, have, have had so many failures before God. And that, to me, puts it into perspective. Because, see, you ought to love your wife, sir, as you love yourself, and then to love her the way that Jesus loved you. Add to that. A husband's love is to be a way of life. When the Bible commands husbands to love their wives, the Greek verb for love is in the present tense, which communicates continuous action. In the present tense, the idea is to keep on doing something. So therefore, when the Bible says, husbands, love your wives, it means keep on loving your wives. You say, well, pastor, I loved my wife when I got married. But boy, after I got home and you said better or worse, I didn't know it was going to be this bad. And I just, you know, I used to love her, but the thrill is gone and I just can't get it back. No, that's not what the Bible's talking. It's talking about. It's a way of life. Husbands, keep on loving your wives. Add to that also, it is a love that guards itself against bitterness. Let me just give you a verse from Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. It says, husbands, love your wives. Same present tense verb. Keep on loving your wives. And do not be bitter toward them. Whoa, this is interesting. Heads up, men. Heads up. Why does God command us not to get bitter toward loving our wives, bitter toward our wives? Why does it say husbands love your wives and don't get mad at them? Or husbands love your wives and, and don't, you know, don't despise them? Why, why is bitterness employed there? Because bitterness is what happens when there is prolonged difficulty. Somebody has said marriage goes through three stages, ideal, ordeal, and back to ideal. That's what happens. You, you get married, everything is wonderful. You, after a while, you get home, you say, ooh, it's not so good. It's the ordeal, and then you learn to live with each other in the grace of God, and it goes back to ideal. Ideal, ordeal, back to ideal. Somebody says ideal, ordeal, in a lot of people's lives, new deal. But that's not how it was intended to be. 
What happens, though, when a man allows bitterness to creep into his heart, it goes from, ide- uh, from, from ideal to ordeal, and it just stays there. Now, how does bitterness come into a marriage? Well, obviously, bitterness can be the result of conflict. Every marriage has conflicts. But I see some marriage, marriages where there's nothing but conflicts. And when a man allows his heart to become bitter, any situation can bring that bitterness out. Just constant, continual conflict. Sir, I want to say to all of us who are husbands today, we cannot allow our hearts to become poison because our hearts are the well that the rest of our family drinks from. We can't allow it to be poison. And so I just want to say to you today, if you have conflict with your wife, get it dealt with and get past it and forgive. And don't let bitterness store up in your heart. Bitterness can be the result of conflict. Then on top of that, with men especially, I don't know why this is so tough for men, but bitterness can just be the result of difference. I mean, I, I'm not going to take a lot of precious time here. I know it's 12 o'clock. I just tell you that so you'll know I know it's 12 o'clock, all right? <laughs> I don't know why this hits men so hard, but men and women are very different. I mean, we're just tuned to different keys. We don't think alike. We don't do things alike. We don't approach things the same way. And that's from creation. God didn't intend for us to be the same. There's no man who understands a woman completely. And there's no woman who understands a man completely. I don't know. Women understand women and men understand men, but it just doesn't cross very much. I, I was amazed just the other day to think about this. When I was thinking about this, Mary Alice uh, had a scheduled conflict and couldn't take Stephen to school one morning. And so I took Stephen to school. And almost everyone in the parking lot was a lady dropping off the kids. There are a few of us dads, but almost everyone there was a lady. And, and most of them are driving SUVs. And I, I just tell you that because SUVs have a high profile, you know, and if there are a lot of them in a parking lot, you can't see very well. And there are blind corners and so on. And so after I dropped Stephen off, I watched, and, and there was a corner, a blind corner, and there were two women driving SUVs coming at each other at a great rate of speed. And I'm telling you, if those were men drivers, somebody's going to die. And I took a deep breath, and I, and I watched it. I could see it happening. I mean, they couldn't see each other. They were coming at each other. They were about ready to drop their kids off. I'm sure they had a lot of things going. And I mean, whew, there they were coming right at each other. And I just felt like closing my eyes, thinking, oh, no, this is going to be terrible. And just the moment when they got together, they just whew, parted, went right by each other, and waved on the way, kept right on going. <laughs> and I thought, that's the most amazing thing. They understand. <laughs> they knew. It was intuitive. Like I said, if those had been men, there would have been dead people out there. <laughs> now, you cannot reject your wife's difference. God made her different. In fact, you wouldn't want her to be just as you are. And that's where communication comes in. Since I can't understand my wife, it's incumbent upon her to explain her feelings to me. Since my wife can't understand me, it's incumbent upon me to explain my feelings to her so that we can have unity in the home. But the word of God is clear. Men are to love their wives, not to become bitter. Bitterness can be the result of conflict. Bitterness can be the result of difference. You've got to let both of those things go. Next thing that I want you to see, men, a husband's love is a love that seeks to please. That seeks to please. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 33. But a married man is concerned about how he can please his wife. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. As with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor 
as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So there you go, men. There's your responsibility in a nutshell. The capstone of the family. Husband, love your wife. Just that one thing. Love your wife. Ladies, wives, here's your assignment. Just one line. Respect. Respect your husband. In the sitcoms of our day, the target of a lot of family humor is the male ego. What can be done to humiliate the man, the father? What can be done to make him look like a bumbler who wouldn't know how to button his shirt if his wife or kids didn't tell him? Well, what makes that funny is two things. First thing that makes it funny is that we men, we really do need help. <laughs> we really do need our wives and we do need our kids. And the second thing that makes it funny is our fallen, depraved nature's love to see authority figures disrespected. But we're not talking about the world today. We're talking about Christians here who are willing to stay after 12 o'clock to hear how to have a spirit-filled family. With that in mind, there's something that every wife needs to understand. God has made your husband with an innate need to be respected. Part of what we refer to as the male ego is that need to be respected. Remember this. Wife, just as God made you with the need to be loved... And you must have that. God has made your husband with a need to be respected. I hear a wife say, you got to be kidding, Pastor. You mean respect him? You mean respect that clown I'm married to? Not on your life. Well, lady, can I tell you something? You don't have to. Did you know that? You don't have to respect your husband. Because the verb used there is not the same one that's used for children to obey their parents. That is something that is demanded. But when the verb is used for wives to respect their husbands, it's a different word. Because you see, a wife's respect for her her husband is to be given willingly from the heart, not demanded or coerced. From the moment it's demanded, it's no longer the biblical concept. So it's true. You don't have to respect your husband. But let me be honest with you today, wife, and tell you what happens when a wife does not respect her husband because we don't live in vacuums. If you don't respect your husband, there are going to be some bad things that are going to happen. Let me tell you, the first thing that's going to happen, he is going to emotionally withdraw from you. Because if you don't respect him, he has no reason to be emotionally close to you. There's no motivation. Because the one thing he needs from you is respect. And if you don't respect him, there's no reason for him to get close to you. You can nag him all day long, and that's not going to help anything. It's like the guy who said, I cut this board off three times and it's still too short. I mean, you're just going to go on and on and on. So he will emotionally withdraw from you. Let's, Let's extend that. Depending upon his personality, he may bitterly reject her. If if that's his personality, he just say, okay, if you're not going to respect me, I'm just, I'm out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. Or if he has a passive personality, he may depend on her to be his mother. So if she does not respect him, what could happen is he'll say, okay, my wife doesn't respect me. She wants to be the authority in the home. So therefore I'll just line up in submission unto her and I'll let her be my mother. And from that moment on, you're going to deal, lady, you're going to deal with a little boy always trying to sneak something out of the cookie jar. Third thing that can happen. When a wife does not respect her husband, he will be left vulnerable. With all the problems that we have in our culture today, we live in a very predatory climate. 
And so I will say to you, ma'am, in all kindness and grace, if you do not respect your husband, somebody out there will respect him, or at least they will give him what passes for respect. And let me just broaden that. Sir, if you don't love your wife, somebody out there will give her love, or more likely, what passes for love, until there is a problem. So I want to say to all of us here today, if we don't do what God wants us to do, we're going to leave our partners vulnerable. Now, let's, let's look at the positive side. What happens when a wife respects her husband? I've talked to so many Christian ladies of the year who say, Pastor, if I respected my husband, if I gave him respect when he doesn't deserve respect, if I did that, then he would take advantage of me. No, it's the most amazing irony. Something wonderful happens when a wife respects her husband. When a wife respects her husband, he becomes humbler before her. He humbles himself before her because he no longer has the need to grasp for power. He doesn't have to grasp for the authority in the home because the wife has already given, them, given him that through respect. So what does he do? He humbles himself before her and meets her needs. We have a fantastic example of this in Philippians chapter 2. The Bible tells us that Jesus, when he came to earth, he knew he was God. The Bible tells us he did not grasp for deity. He knew he had it already. So how did he come to earth? He came to earth as a servant to meet our needs because he knew who he was already. Lady, you respect your husband. He won't have to grasp for power in the home. He won't have to grasp for authority. He will humble himself before you. Then number two, I've noticed this through the years. Her respect triggers his love. What happens when you have a wife who respects her husband? She respects him. He loves her. The more he loves her, the more she can respect him. So therefore, the more he's going to love her. And you have this positive upward spiral going on in a spirit-filled home. She's loving him. He's, uh, she's respecting him. He's loving her. And it just keeps on going. Her respect triggers his love. Number three, the third thing that happens. Well, let me, just, let me go on to this very quickly. Let me talk to you about the children's assignment. The children's assignment. The children's assignment, simple one line, honor and obey their parents. Now, for those of you who are young people here today, I know many of our young people are in, in Bible study during this hour. They were in the early service. But the two wonderful things about children honoring their parents, the first thing the Bible says is it's right. It's right. While somebody can say, Pastor, I knew you were going to get to that, boy. You're going to beat me over the head with right and wrong. Well, that's important to have right and wrong. But there's a different way to define the word or consider the concept of right. Let me see if I can explain this. I remember when I was in college and finals week would roll around. It's not that long before finals week, right? Right, guys? And I mean, it is just such a brutal week because you have everything coming to a culmination. You have all these tests. And I can remember how pleasant and how sweet it was when one of my professors would walk in and say, okay, I know you guys are just really under extreme pressure right now, so we're going to consider today a review day. Now, if you'll, if you'll listen to these things, if you'll take notes on what I'm going to give you today, you're going to know what's going to be on the exam tomorrow. You ever have a teacher like that, professor? Isn't that great? Because you know what you have, he's going to give you what's right. You're going to walk into class with, with the right answers. I really believe that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to children who will obey their parents. You can, you, and, I, and forgive me for using the vernacular here, but you can go through life with a cheat sheet. It's right. It's the right thing to do. If you want to know what the right answers are for life, young people, honor and obey your parents. That's the first thing God says is right. Now, number two, God says it's smart. It's smart. How many parents here today 
Remember when, you were, when your kids were little? And actually, they still do this. They do this all through life, but especially when they're little. You start telling your kid to do something or not to do something. And what's the word? What's the magic three-letter word? Why? Why? Why do I have to do this? It's interesting to me that in all these one-line instructions that the Holy Spirit anticipated that our kids were going to know, want to know why do I honor my parents? Because, bang, right after we have children obey your parents, we get the becauses. It's smart. The Bible says that it may go well with you. Christian young people, there's a line. There is a line drawn in the cosmic sand that separates successful people from unsuccessful people in the family of God. And often it goes back to how did they deal with their parents? Did they respect their parents? Did they honor their parents? Because here's the thing. The Bible says if you honor your parents, it's a promise. Things will just go well for you. You'll have your ups and downs, but there's just something. You show me a young person who grows up in submission to his parents, I think there are two factors at work. I think, first of all, there's a natural factor at work. Even it happens in a lost person's life. If you grow up respecting your parents, you have a healthy view of authority, and people who have a healthy view of authority are going to the top. But there is a spiritual dimension to this, because when you honor your parents, you bring in the favor of God. Okay, I know it's 10 minutes after 12. And I still have one left. And I heard you closing up your Bibles and your notes a few minutes ago. (laughs) I'm promising you someday I'm just going to put a dummy point on there so that you have to wait for that to come. So don't close your Bibles. At least don't close your minds yet. Because parents, you have a single responsibility. First responsibility, the first part of that is don't exasperate your kids. Isn't that an interesting word, exasperate? When you think about someone who's exasperated, what do you think about? You think of somebody who's just so hassled or to the point of giving up. I mean, if I'm exasperated, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm not hassled. I'm not troubled. I'm not annoyed. I'm exasperated. Just let me out of here. Well, that's the word the Holy Spirit uses here. Parents, don't exasperate your kids. Don't get your kids to the place where they are ready to give up. Well, what exasperates a kid? What is it about a parent? What is it there about parenthood that predisposes us toward exasperating our kids? Let me give you what I think it is. Before I say that, let me just go go, go to one more place. It's interesting to me that when I read that text, the Bible says, don't exasperate your kids, but what's what's the answer? Bring them up in spiritual things. So much of the problem that we have with our kids is we set these ideals for what we want our kids to be. For their best, for their benefit, for their good, we want them to be this. Sometimes we want them to be a doctor. We want them to be a lawyer. We want them to be a pastor. We want them to continue in the family business. Or we, we, want, them to, we want them to be what we didn't get to be. We didn't, as parents, maybe we didn't have the educational benefits. We want our kids to have it so that they'll be up here at the top. We, we want them to be here. And not only do we want them to be there, we have this idea. We have this trek. We have this plan. We have this road that we want them to take to get there. So, I mean, we've got it all mapped out. (laughs) The only problem is, if you've ever raised a kid, you know that a kid's not going to follow that track, and he may not even want to be what you want him to be. I mean, God might even have something over here he wants. So, see, the Bible doesn't tell us, set an ideal and get your kid to that ideal. The Bible says, look, don't exasperate your kids. Just bring them up in the nurture of God and the training of God and let God take care of what they're going to be. 
You can't have the ideal son. You can't have the perfect daughter that you have. God will not let you do that. And if God, even if God were to sign off on it, they wouldn't let you do that. So don't exasperate your kids. Should we want the best? Yes. Should we provide the most? Yes. But when it gets down to it, the key is to allow God to set the ideal and for us to just make sure we bring them up in the ways of God. Now, one thing and I'm through. Notice that the Bible doesn't say push them up. A lot of difference between pushing a child up and bringing a child up, right? Amen? I mean, that's just, that's just simple definition dynamics. I mean, here's the thing. If my kid is down here with me and, I, and God wants my child to be up, so I say, okay, son, I'm going to push you up. Well, what, what's, what's, the, what's the obvious? I'm not up. If I have to push my child up, I'm not up. Now, if I, on the other hand, if I'm going to bring my child up, the very definition of the word bring says I'm up already, and I'm bringing this child up to spiritual maturity. You know why a lot of us parents don't have any success? We're not up. How can we bring our kids to a place where we're not? Just one line, mom, one line, dad, don't exasperate your children. Bring them up. Bring them up. And that's it. Thanks for staying till 1215. Just one line. Husband, real simple. Love your wife. Wife, respect your husband. Children, obey your parents. And parents, don't exasperate your children, but bring them up. Now, one more thing. P.S. I know who I'm preaching to. I'm preaching to good, good Baptists and good other denominations and people that love the Lord. And you're like you and me. We're, made, we're wearing flesh here. And so we hear something like this. We say, that's real good. I think the pastor's right. And obviously the Bible's right. Now here's the thing. As soon as my husband starts loving me, then I'm going to respect him, just like the pastor said. Or as soon as my wife starts giving me my props, then I'm going to, I'm going to love her. It's not how it works. See, spirit-filled people walk by faith. Faithful people obey God. Faithful people obey God when they can't see the outcome. They just obey God because they know God is going to bless them. And so what happens when a godly man hears this sermon? He says, I'm going to go home. I'm going to love my wife. Even if she's in a bad mood and doesn't respect me, I'm going to love my wife anyway, and I'm going to wait till God works in her life. And, and a wife goes home and hears this and says, I may be married to a clown, but I'm going to respect him. I'm going to respect him like he's a head clown. I'm going to give him honor. <laughs> I'm going to give him honor no matter what. And there are young people here today. You say, my parents are just so hassled. They're distracted. They're not consistent. They're all over the page. But the Word of God tells me to honor my parents, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to obey my parents. See, that's how faithful people do this. They just, they just obey God. They just go home and do it. They don't think about it. They don't wait for other things to happen. They just go home and do it. And on this last day, in this last minute, what has been a five-month series. I guess that's what I need to tell you. Just take the Word of God and go home and do it. Just go home and do it. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your Word today. I need it. All of us need it. And now would you work in our lives. May we be godly men, godly women, godly parents, godly young people. And may we live in such a way that we can look to you in confidence, knowing that you'll bless our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.